Hi, it's David Woodwell with uh, Peck's podcast with Pennsylvania Legacies, talking with the wild and wonderful folks who make the environmental and conservation movement and business industry from nonprofits, academia, anywhere uh, tick in Pennsylvania. And with us today is Gabby Hughes, an environmental educator at the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania, who has been there for about 17 years doing phenomenal stuff, getting people out from their uh, Beechwood Farm site, the Todd Sanctuary, all their other facilities and in the schools. And Gabby, welcome to this today. Thank Um, you. Excited to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And environmental education is just it's almost a loaded word, but it's not. What is environmental education? Oh, it's it, you know, it can be a lot of things, and, and it can often be hard to explain. But um, you think of environmental education first and foremost. It's it's trying to connect people with the natural world around them, um, and it can be adults, it can be children of any age. You know, from we just had babes in the woods with little babies, um, all the way up through college age. Um, but it's it's the process of connecting people with the natural world around them. Um, when you're working with schools, it it goes through the process of first of all an awareness of the natural world and an understanding of how it works, all the way up through action and how how do you help as far as conservation and action and um, things that you can do. So. It encompasses that whole process, and it can take many forms. It can cover many different subject areas. So how'd you get into this? Yeah. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I actually was an art major in college. And uh, and didn't have anything else you could do. So, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'd always loved the outdoors. I mean, we were always kind of an outdoorsy family. We went camping, and we went, you know, we went to the Outer Banks before there were movie theaters there and that kind of stuff. So, um, and my dad was a hunter and, you know, would fish and my mom just threw us outside all day long, come back when it gets dark. But when I went to college, I actually went for art and, um, it wasn't until I think my sophomore year or maybe even my junior year that I started to, to take some zoology classes and those led me into evolution and ecology classes. And I was hooked and I, at that point it was too late to start over again, you know? Um, so I graduated, I had my degree in art, and then I um, also had a minor in zoology, and I thought, well, how can I work outside? Because <laughs> that's what I want to do. And so I started volunteering at Audubon, and um, I volunteered. There was a woman named Joanne Davis that I started out with and uh, did some weekend programming for them and um, volunteered to lead scout groups. And she just happened to be in a position where she was like, you know, I have another project coming up, and I'm going to have to pawn off my Fox Chapel. This is not pawn off, but sorry, I'm going to need some help with my Fox Chapel programs, and I happen to be in the right place at the right time. That's cool. Well, you talked about, I mean, there's, I think, a common theme for a lot of people who do the outdoors, that they got pushed out that they had parents who were, you know, hook and bullet. They were either hunting or fishing. Mm-hmm. They were brought into that. And you're working with kids. Is that happening today? As much, I mean, Last Child in the Woods is out there that, that yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a good thing? Well, no, no, no. It, it's not. Ha- it, I think that right following my generation and probably even a lot of my generation, it didn't happen. You know, I just happened to be really lucky. And I had parents that thought that was very important. Um and we're willing to share that with me, but I think the intervening generations, you don't see that, you know, kids are plugged in, they're inside a lot. Now, that being said, I have started to notice an, an uptick 
in parents that are more aware of that. And for instance, we use volunteers with the, the first and second Fox Chapel programs that we do, first and second grade. And I've just noticed a difference in the parents that are volunteering, that they are really much more aware of how important that is. And, and in, instead of just being volunteers that, oh, this is my child's class, so I'll volunteer to help, they're, they're saying, I want to do this because I think it's important that they're outside and that they experience this. And so I think that it is starting to change a little bit. A little bit. But that's also that's also an interesting demographic where you're dealing with one of the best off school districts Absolutely. in the state. So it's it's there's still probably a lot of issues out there. And how, do you yeah. have to work hard to disconnect people from the screens? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. I find, and even with myself, I find it hard. You know, I catch myself on my screen a lot, and I have to, to force myself away from it. But um, I think the interesting thing is, is once you get the kids outside, and this happens with adults, too. Once you get them outside and engaged in doing something outside, then that kind of anxiety about being away from your screen starts to disappear and you really see, um, we've been doing some neat projects. Um, recently we worked with Dorseyville middle school and we also worked with Presley Ridge. Um, and we had them learning about birds and, and what birds need and what our local bird species are and, and doing bird walks, um, throughout the semester. And then the end result was they actually design a bird friendly garden and install it on the school ground. And just to see those kids every time we would take them outside, it's just magic, you know, especially they see that first bird and they see it in binoculars even better. And they're just like, whoa. And when we got to the point where we were designing the garden, just they had learned about plants that support the birds and just seeing them kind of work together and use little slips of paper and markers to design something and be completely engaged in it for like an hour and you know, no arguing, you know, just so amazing. Yeah. And then actually installing the garden, getting their hands dirty. And it was really, really amazing. Well, that's what, I mean, that's hands-on experiential, mm -hmm. but aren't there also, I mean, Pennsylvania's got ed, environmental ed standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And are those sort of more, you have to pass a test at the end of the day, or do they really incorporate the kind of stuff you're doing? As well, well, everybody has to pass a test at the end of the day. I mean, that's just the way it is in education. I think, that um, the really good teachers, and there are so many really good teachers out there, they find creative ways to make it not just learning out of the book. Because, yeah, you can do that, but the way that it, it, the way environmental education is meant to be done is it is best done outside with supporting classroom work. And um, we were just talking about the second grade um, that that we work with the second grade um, in the district and they have, we have a unit that we do with them all about learning about animals and their adaptations and their habitats. And the classroom unit culminates in their field trip to Salamander Park. And which is just a wonderful day. The kids absolutely love it. Um, but then this particular class, Fairview Elementary, they took that and they turned it into a um, project-based uh unit that they were doing with learning how to code and um, program, which I couldn't do <laughs> if right. my life depended yeah. on it. But they actually took what they were doing outside of Salamander Park and, and added that component and just it just fits so well. So I think there are creative ways to do it. When teachers, how many districts are you guys working with right now? Uh, we, we, well, 
We have our biggest district that we work with is Fox Chapel, but we've worked with, um, I personally have been working with um, Crafton, um, Presley Ridge. We do um, school groups as outreach throughout right. seven counties. Um, Scott sees, I, don't, I can't tell you how many kids he sees at our Beach right. Farms location. So. How tough is it for teachers to make this happen? I mean, is it because they're fighting for resources as well? You guys are fighting for resources. They're fighting for time. They're fighting with every other arts class and field trip and everything else. Do you guys win these battles? I don't want to think of them as battles. I think that they are, um, because there are expenses. And, you know, luckily there are grant programs out there and things like the EITC, um, you know, tax credits where, where there is some funding out there available. But one of the, the interesting challenges is to incorporate it. So you're talking about fighting with the arts classes and fighting with these other classes. And the idea is to integrate it all. And the, the program that I just talked about, they worked with the art teacher, they worked with a computer teacher and, you know, um, you can incorporate it language arts into that. And so if you're able to make it sort of the central theme of what you're doing and, and which takes work. I mean, it takes, it does take work. It's not easy. So when you've also got one program where you take an entire fifth grade every fall, correct? Yeah. We take the, we take about 300 some kids over three weeks and we do, um, it's a four day, three night residential program. And we ship them out to, um, the Laurel Highlands <laughs> and we work with them there and their teachers come along um, we use the high school students from the district, and um, they come along. Uh, we have a full staff. The teachers are extremely involved in that, which is really important. They're out there leading hikes. They're working with us to develop the curriculum that, that takes place in the classroom before and after. Um, and so they're actually doing that. They're integrating. They, they integrate their language arts, their um, social studies um, into, so it's not just science, um, but all the well, science is important. <laughs> yeah. Think, and things say, what, is that, that's a rarity, I take it? I think more and more um, that is that is really being looked at as, as, a, as a good way to do things. Um, you hear a lot about project-based learning or problem-based learning nowadays where you do have one central idea right. that you build all these other curricular elements into, and it just seems to work really well. So what's the future of environmental ed? I mean, is it, is it growing, stagnant? Is it, are you guys kicking down the doors with new technology? I think, I think it's, I, th I think you have to say it's growing. You see a lot of, a lot more organizations now that are becoming involved, which is great. Um, you see a lot of really interesting projects going on. And I think, it kind of has to keep growing. I think it has to be, you know, hopefully become just an everyday part of the, the school day or, you know, our environmental issues are so important and, you know, people seem to be taking more notice of that nowadays in, in certain respects. And, and it, so, and the t are the teachers helping with that? Yeah, too? I think absolutely. So I think, yeah. Cause I mean, we've, um, Crafton, for instance, that was, the one reading teacher over there, she contacted us and said, you know, I want to incorporate this stuff into the students, you know, classroom lives. So how can you help us? And so, yeah, you, I think you find a lot of teachers that are really looking and for opportunities. So do you get to see your alumni? 
students who have gone through your programs come back and do stuff? Yes, I do. I don't know if I'm allowed to say. I have one sitting right here, Elena. (laughs) So, uh, Elena... I've had probably since since I was like five or six, five or six yeah. years old, and yeah. I hate to say she's in college now, but because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it makes me feel old, but it's awesome, and and she's just like a shining star. She's we've had her not only in camps, I've had her at Fox Chapel, but she's also just been a an absolute amazing role model as a counselor in training for our summer camps, and now she's actually one of our summer staff for the summer and just perfect prime example. When you got at Beachwood Audubon, there are also, I think, some scholarship programs that go forward to, to help people think about careers and get into it. We do have, well, our one of our scholarship um, opportunities is the Beulah Fry Scholarship, which honors Miss Beulah Fry, who was the teacher in the Fox Chapel School District who started their whole environmental ed program and um, the camp program that you spoke about is actually about I think it's 42 or 43 years old this year and in full disclosure my wife was in one of the first classes yeah. so yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, so we have that scholarship and which we are actually in the review process right now for uh, we have a committee um, and we get submissions from all over um, the seven county area from high school seniors. So you get to work in some very cool places and get to get out. Yeah. What are what are some of the gems where you get to work and why? The places I get to work. Or get to hang out. Def- Your choice. Well, hang yeah. out. <laughs> I, was, I just went to Dolly's Odds this weekend okay. to hang out, which was super cool. But as far as getting to work, well, I absolutely think um, Beachwood Farms and – even more so, I love Todd Nature Reserve. I just think Todd, which is in Sarver, PA, it's one of our, our reserves, is just an absolute gem that most people don't know is there. It's just got beautiful streams running through these large rock outcroppings and hemlock trees. Just really, really stunning. You'll hear barred owls sometimes. I mean, just beautiful. And if you were driving through Sarver, you'd never know it was there, you know. So I think our properties, of course, are, are real gems. Um, I think the city park system is amazing. I think it's absolutely fabulous. I get to spend. I live over near Frick Park, and um, I just think that's a just a wonderful site. And then, of course, the Laurel Highlands, where we do the the Fox Chapel program, is just pencil. I have staff that come from all over the country for that program, and they always are just amazed at how beautiful Pennsylvania is. Do you think Pennsylvanians realize that? No, I do not think they realize it. I really don't. I think that we could do a better job of getting outside more and appreciating. I think we're a little spoiled in Pittsburgh because we have so much green space that um, we have it right in our city. But I think if you venture even just not very far beyond the city within an hour and you are just in some absolute gorgeous gorgeous scenery that's hiking trails that you know i think are as as good as anywhere so what why are you doing what you're doing why are you still you've been doing it for 17 years you're sticking with it what what keeps you coming back well first of all i love being outside (laughs) and uh i hate to think i do spend a lot of time at the computer surprisingly but i would hate to think i'd have to spend all day there but um there's nothing like working with a group and 
you know, whether it's kids or adult, we just had the OSHA group with, you know, seniors today. And there's nothing like seeing them experience the outdoors in a new way or learn something or have just like that click that's just like, aha, you know, like, oh, I get it. Or seeing a child being able to like hold a little frog in their hand or, or something like that, or see that amazing bird species and just understand what they need um, to survive. So I think that's, that's pretty amazing. So what's the value? I mean, it's, you know, we talk about people who come back and, and do it, but what's, what's the value of the environmental ed for those who don't sort of have that total spark and stay committed? I mean, is there still good value to just the exposure? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, you hope, I mean, you know, you're not going to reach everybody. I mean, that's just a given, but you hope that everybody at least has some degree of understanding that we all depend on the natural world, no matter what. Um, and you could live in a condo in downtown Pittsburgh or downtown Manhattan, and you still can trace everything that you need to survive back to the natural world. And that's, it's not different for anybody on the face of the earth. And so I think if people have even just a small idea of those kinds of connections um, that are important that make the world spin and make life possible. Which is also broader because you work for the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania, which people immediately think birds. Right, right. But it's a lot broader than that. Well, it is a lot yeah. broader. And birds are, but birds are excellent because birds are very charismatic. There are species, there are like that one, birds and bugs. <laughs> I mean, those are the wild animals that are going to look at you and be like, yeah, okay. You know, they're, I mean, how many of us get to see a coyote or a bear or on a regular basis? You know, we all see deer, yes, but, <laughs> but birds are just these amazing creatures. They have such fascinating existence. I mean, you think of some of these tiny little songbirds that weigh a few ounces and they're making these like, trips across the western hemisphere that are like thousands and thousands and thousands of miles and they're doing it twice a year and they raise somehow they manage to survive and raise young and you know that is just a spectacle and it's just it's miraculous almost you know it's just something that i think should fascinate everybody and so they're a really great spokes animal (laughs) for um what we all need to survive and this, you know, the struggle that it is. Are you a birder? Yes, I am. Right. I, I am not a, I am not the hardcore birder <laughs> that is going to run out, you know, to Costa Rica tomorrow. But, life list? Uh, I do have a, a life, well, a loosely held life list. Okay. For um, those who don't know, a life list is just sort of like all the birds you've ever seen. Yes. You keep track of all the birds you've ever seen and where and the dates that you saw them. And I do have one of those. I cannot tell you how long it is. Um, and it's in several different places. <laughs> so what's the, the, the life list bucket list? What are the, what are the birds that you really want to see? It's all of them. I just think they're all fascinating, you know, and, and kids ask me all the time, especially what is your favorite bird? And it changes depending on what season it is. It changes just depending on what habitat I'm in. I mean, I I think it's, I think they all have value and they're all exciting. And, you know, even the really common birds, I think are. Okay. So if this were the Oprah show and we were giving stuff away and said, (laughs) all right, here's your, here's your perfect birding trip. What's the, what's the trip? And 
it doesn't necessarily have to be about birds, but mm-hmm. where would that trip be? Because you're somebody very connected to the natural world. Well, if you tell me Manhattan, I'm going to be a little no. upset. <laughs> well, um, two directions I would like to go. Um, if we're talking about the Western Hemisphere, I would definitely like to explore up into Canada more. I've been there once or twice, and I just think it's absolutely gorgeous. And I am a cold-weather girl. I, I'm, I'm not... That being said, I would love I would love to go to Iceland. Just <laughs> I would just love to go there. But um, so like the boreal forest and beyond, I would love to explore that. But then I would definitely like to go down to like Costa Rica and the tropics, just because that's where all of our amazing summer migrant species that's where they spend the winter. So, so what are those migrant amazing. species telling us right now about the world when they when they come through? If they're telling their stories, they come through Western Pennsylvania. What are they telling us? Uh, I think they're asking us to take a look at what we're doing and, and really make some changes because, I mean, you think about birds like that, they exist in two habitats. And not only two habitats, not only a summer breeding ground and a wintering ground, but also all the habitat in between that they have to journey through. And um, the struggles that they're facing include loss of all of those habitats to varying degrees. So, you know, because they need food, they need shelter, they need all of that all through the year. But also the changing habitat. So climate change, especially when you look at, at animals like that, that have these specialized needs, that have two two locations that they have to utilize. Um, they're just climate change and, and the habitat change that's coming with that is has the potential to really impact them and um audubon had the um birds and climate change report that came out just yeah. recently yeah. that really details looks at you know hundreds of species and and what could potentially happen to them all right so not to end on a depressing note um backyard birding is that something that you do a lot with yes what because yes. that's a way that people can actually interact right where they are right absolutely and um we do a lot of beginning birding classes um, all the way up through. Uh, we're right smack dab in the middle of our master birder class, our first master birder uh, class for the year. But beginning birding is one of my favorite things to do because I think it's, it, it's again, just seeing people make that connection and all of a sudden realizing for the first time that you can see a bird and you can see it up close and you can watch what it does. And just the first time you show somebody like a scarlet tanager or something like like not too far from their backyard or a Baltimore Oriole or something like that. Um, just the way their face lights up. And even a chickadee, when you can have a kid watch a chickadee come to a feeder that they've made and they hang in their backyard and they can watch that chickadee come back and forth and back and forth because, you know, of something they've done, then that's just amazing. And there's nothing like it. On that note, because who knows what depressing things I'll take us to from there. Gabby, <laughs> thank you. That message of hope and, you know, the future and everything else. Thanks for all you do. And sure. full disclosure, both my kids have gone through that program that Gabby's talked about. We've been to programs. But uh, ASWP.org is the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania's uh, website. Programs they do, neat things, check them out, become a member. But Gabby, it's been a long time. You're going to be doing this for a while. And on behalf of everybody who's folks, kids have gone through it. Thank you very much. Oh, no, thank you. All right. And thank you all for listening today. 
uh, Gabby Hughes, environmental educator of the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania, who has been doing and continues to do fantastic stuff connecting people with nature here in southwestern Pennsylvania. And I uh, look forward to joining you again on a future episode. Pennsylvania Legacies is a production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. The views expressed by guests and even by the host are not necessarily those of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Our thanks to Regan Curry, who produces this show for us, and also to Very Tight Recordings and Matt, who provides us with the studio space in Sharpsburg, Pennsylvania. Check him out. It's a great facility if you need recording work. And look for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council at www.pecpa.org. Thanks for listening.